So today's a little different. Uh, uh, sitting in this very cushy chair, which I learned in first service, I, I don't lean back because I have narcolepsy. I, you know, I just fall asleep. And uh, so uh, I'm just going to go ahead and not fall, go back there and go sleep. But today we are doing this question and answer. We do these probably twice a year. Hot seat Q&A. Uh, you can text in any question you want. Also, there's cards that uh, can be handed out, and you can pass to the ushers, and they'll get them up to Scott. So if you see ushers off on the wings, they have the cards that you can fill out and just kind of signal them, and they'll make sure to get it to you. But this is your time to ask whatever you want. It's hot seat, so I have not seen the questions. Uh, if you want to text them in, Scott's the one that's going to be getting those. If you have AT&T, well, they will punish you by not letting your text go through. Um, so everybody else, I think, is good. AT&T, a little sketchy, so we'll see how that goes. Uh, but good times all the way around. So I don't know if you have anything else to add to that. Nope, that's it. Um, you only need to send your question in once. Yes. <laughs> yes. We won't get to all the questions, so it doesn't mean that we didn't get it. Right. So as Scott said very kindly last hour, if you send it more than once, there's a reason why you feel the need to send it more than once, and that is because he doesn't plan to ask your question. <laughs> um, so... Uh, yeah, oh, and if you do it all in caps, he'll say, you're angry, <laughs> you need management, and then we'll go from there. So, um, so I think we'll go ahead and pray, and then after we pray, we'll get right to business with whatever you guys want to talk about today. Jesus, I thank you so much for your grace and your love. I thank you so much for uh, your church, and I thank you for a day like today. I thank you for dads, uh, kind of the load they carry, the things they do. I pray you bless them today as they're with their families. And, and again, man, we, I, I just thank you for all that you do for us, for your people, and for this world that you are reclaiming to yourself. So we thank you and love you in your good and awesome name. Amen. All right, I'm going to take a bite. So I need protein for this. Right on. Uh, yeah. Pastor Matt, I am looking for a softball for you, a softball question, and nothing so far. Oh, great. So... Just pick the hardest one. Here, here, here's the funnest one so far. Oh, good. What would Jesus think about the death penalty? Isn't that fun? <laughs> what would Jesus think about the death penalty? Well, all right, here's a couple things come to mind. Because I, I think we kind of see this, this uh, polarization between the God of the Old Testament, the God of the New Testament revealed in Jesus. They're not the same God. They're the same God, but the same um, focus on justice and those kinds of things. When Jesus comes into the world, it's a little different than in the Old Testament structure where you're talking about a, a country run by God. I'm swallowing my meat now. All right, so... Um, especially on a serious question, too. I'm like, i got to finish chewing. All right, so come to the New Testament. Jesus is way more of a missionary. He's not the God of a country. It's a country away from God that he wants to reclaim. So he doesn't have the same tone in the Gospels that you see in the Old Testament, but it's still the same character, same heart, same God. Here's the other thing I want to fast forward to. If you get to the book of Revelation, Jesus executes the death penalty in mass numbers. All right, suddenly you're like, this is a drag. Um, but Jesus still has judgment at the end of time, right? And even the book of Revelation has a lot of God's judgment on people for their offenses. And so um, when you say, well, what would Jesus think of the death penalty? Well, Jesus himself will execute that at the end of the age. And so certainly from an ideological perspective on the big scope, Jesus clearly sees it as a part of what uh, he is about and what he does. Now, how that translates into the world right now, what Jesus emphasized for us as Christians in the world right now, that's a little bit murkier, to be honest, because you look at the words of Jesus, and certainly he would want to keep injustice at bay. He'd want to protect those who are uh, non-criminal from those who are criminal, uh, but Jesus never spoke to, therefore, execute the death penalty or exercise the death penalty. He just didn't get into that. Rome did that very commonly. Jesus dies at the hands of their execution policy. So he's very aware of it, but he just chooses not to really speak to that 
Um, and so it's tough for me to say, well, what would Jesus think about it based on the gospel template and how we're supposed to conduct ourselves? I, it's not an answer I think is really clear either way. That doesn't mean, that's not some political statement whether we should or shouldn't. The question is, what would Jesus think of it? And I think Jesus would probably first say is, uh, we live in a sinful world, which is why I came anyway to die for it, because it's very broken. Why you would have to use the death penalty is related to what I came to solve. Um, and so he would say all of what it surrounds breaks his heart, right? Um, as far as whether he would say I'm pro-death penalty or anti-death penalty, Jesus was wise and didn't say it in a world that had that same punishment, right? He just kind of stayed away from the topic um, to get to the bigger picture of heart and character and the gospel and those kinds of things. Um, but I go back to in the end, Jesus isn't just some fluffy, feel-good, uh, you know, doesn't bring judgment. There is a judgment to come even from him. So you've got to keep all of his character in our mind. And I, I guess I said all of that because I think sometimes there is kind of the, we see Jesus in the Gospels as a God who is different than the Jesus of Revelation or the God of the Old Testament. It's one and the same. It's totally one and the same. Don't lose sight of that. Uh, just because he's conducting different business at different intervals, he's still the same God with the same basic parameters. So... If Redemption Church could be known for one thing, what would you wish that to be? Um, my prayer has been that we would be known as a place where people go, those people really do experience God. I mean, that would be my absolute pinnacle desire because um, you know, my, my belief is where God is showing up, great things happen, and where people are experiencing the presence of God, they are passionate about all the other things that, that kind of make our faith tick. They're going to be passionate about holiness and passionate about reaching the lost and passionate about humility, passionate about service, if God's really showing up among his people. Um, I think also a lost person, they might have an argument, but the presence of God is very compelling, even against an argument. And so um, that has been my daily prayer, will continue to be my daily prayer, that redemption will be known as a place where people go, man, God really shows up among those people. And, and that is clear and that is evident. Uh, more than anything else. Because like I said, I think from that, the other things more naturally follow. And so um, that's why this year is Seek 13, right? We just want to seek the presence of God and have God show up big. So that would, be, that would be my number one thing. What possible excuse could there be for those not having their kids signed up for youth camps yet? <laughs> Enough said. All right, so... <clears throat> See how easy that was? I just go, I, I should have been like Jesus. I should have done that. I don't know. What reason is there for them not? Just a question with a question. So much better. Yeah. All right. And since you got an easy one there, um, pre or post trib? Oh, this is easy. Neither. Woohoo! Yeah. Somebody like pre post trib. What is that? All right. Okay, so real quick, this is like, how does the world end? Another great topic. I love, like, second service is like all heavy. Like, first service is like, hey, man, what, boxers are briefs. You know, like, this service, you know, no, you know, problems of the universe. All right, so, uh, no, you know, I mean, like, like, so it's the whole, when, how does the world end? I mean, how does Jesus come back? Is there seven years of tribulation? If there's seven years of tribulation, is the rapture before the seven years, after the seven years, in the middle of the seven years? All of that falls under this broader label called premillennial dispensationalism. Yes, say that ten times fast, all right? Um, that's the theological term for all of that. When does the rapture happen in relationship to the tribulation? I, I don't even hold to what's called premillennialism. Therefore, I don't have any position on the rapture. So for me, 
it's none of the above, because I'm a completely different theological breed on the end of the world. So, which I will not bore you with, because then I'll use another big word, and you'll be like, make him stop, Father's Day. All right, so, yeah, I'm just in none of the above. Neither is Jesus, by the way, but that's a different thing. So, uh, oh, lighten up, man. All right. Uh, what is your favorite thing about being a father? My favorite thing about being a father? Um, actually, I do think, we, like in the summertime especially, we can just hang out on the back porch. We do this probably eh, four to five nights a week. We just sit on the back porch, build a fire, and just hang out and talk, right? And I know for, for some of us, maybe you're like, if I had my kids five nights a week out on the porch just talking with them, I would drink. Um, you know, like, like, it can be a little crazy sometimes, right? Because they want to go all over the place, but you really get to know their heart, really get to know their passions and their fears and all of that, and I think that is the best part, especially in the, the, the time they're in, the teen years is, and I love my kids. I mean, my kids are, are, are doing great all the way around, um, but it's still a burden raising teenagers. Anybody that has a teenager or has raised a teenager, you know it's a season of burden because you're, you're, you're having to adjust as a parent, right? You've, you've had a lot of control for a lot of years, and now all you have is influence. This question kind of came up in the last hour. Um, and so I think the transition as a parent, the growth of a parent is very hard with the teen years. Um, and so with kind of having to leverage the influence, the more you're interacting with the kids, the more you're just trying to create pockets of, of insight or opportunity or dialogue, uh, boy, you learn stuff about yourself, you learn things about them. Um, and I think that's probably one of the, the neatest things about being a parent right now is seeing them take on a life of their own. It's not easy. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful and I'm burdened by that. Um, I, I smile a lot looking at my kids because I see their personalities. I cry a lot more uh, than I ever have raising kids with teenagers, honestly. I, I, I am way weepier um, with that too. So just, just kind of putting myself out there, that's both true. And, and so, um, you know, I think from that, God grows them, grows us as parents. And in that sense, it's, it's one of the best things about being a dad right now. There, it's the highest arc of growth, I think, that comes out of this season. So it shapes you and it shapes them, that's for sure. First mm -hmm. John 4.18 says, There is no fear in love, yet in other areas of the Bible we are told we should fear God and that we should love God. How can that be? Yeah, I think sometimes we kind of, we're so good at the polarization, we don't see how those two ends can come to be right in the center. So I think about like Isaiah chapter 8, um, where it says, if you fear the Lord, you have nothing else to fear. Um, and I think that's the way the Bible kind of, kind of sees it. It's a little bit like just using the, the parent-child analogy. A real ideal relationship between child to parent is where the child desperately loves the parent and respectfully fears the parent. Both are true for a healthy relationship. If you have a child that says, I don't fear my parent at all, that's not healthy. And if you have a child that says, I only fear my parent, that's not healthy. But when you have that blend of love and fear toward a parent, that really is kind of the ideal sweet spot because it says, you're so powerful and strong and wise, I want to be around you, but you're so powerful, strong, and wise, I fear that power, strength, and wisdom too, right? It's, it's both together. And so that's the way that God wants us to relate to him. So we go, man, I love God so much. I have nothing else to fear. I, I don't need to fear the world. I don't need to fear my bills or my job situation or my government or where the culture's going because I, I fear God more than I fear all of that. That's really healthy. But you also go, and I love God so much. I want to be near him more because he's a safe place. That's, that, those are both just equal truths. I think sometimes we, we just, we kind of say, well, you know, hate 
is the opposite of love, or fear is the opposite of love. And some things for God, God's like, no, they're just equally true. Don't, don't try to set them on opposite ends. Just hold them together as being both true and complementing each other in different ways. That's, I think, how fear and love complement a relationship to God. How do you direct non-believing friends when they have questions or need guidance in their secular life? Um, you know, I, I think um, the Bible is wisdom for life whether you follow God or not, right? I mean, I think part of the genius of a book like Proverbs is it's just smart. It's just wise, right? I mean, it's like if, you, if, if somebody said, you know what, I don't, I don't believe in God, I don't believe in the Bible, but I would love to pick the wisest document to live by, I would say the Bible is going to do that for you, right? Forget whether it's from God. I mean, this is even why secular people acknowledge that the wisdom of the Bible is very wise, right? And especially a book like Proverbs, which is predicated on the idea of wisdom. So it's going to talk about how you conduct uh, your family life, your marriage life, your honesty, your money, your relationships, whatever else. There's so much great guidance that I think if somebody says, man, I, I don't believe in Jesus, but what, would you what do you think I should do about X? I would take them to the Bible. Say, here's what you should do about X, you know, Wh whatever it is. Maybe it's Proverbs, maybe it's Psalms, maybe it's Ecclesiastes, maybe it's the book of James, which the book of James is amazing. It's five chapters and it has 54 commands in five chapters. I call it the Proverbs of the New Testament because um, it's so bite-sized with wisdom and ideas. And a ton of it is applicable, right? I mean, you know, probably more than any other system I can think of, and especially kind of the collective ignorance of the day that floats around, uh, the Bible is kind of this tried to true wisdom over the centuries. So I would just take them right back to, to that, you know? I mean, you don't have to say, well, you know what Solomon said. I mean, you can, but they'd be like, oh, Solomon. Um, you know, I would just give them biblical wisdom, you know what I mean? So, and, and then when they go, yeah, that was really great advice. Thanks for that. You can say, yeah, yeah, it's, it's from the Bible. <laughs> you know, and they're like, no way. You know, so I think that's a great way to do it. You can even be missional in that sense. Dirt or street? <laughs> well, I, my house is on dirt, and I wish it were street. Yeah, street. Uh, what is the purpose of the genealogies in the Bible in relation to the modern reader? No, wow, man, second service, wow. Uh, uh, no, you know, I mean, not much relationship for the modern reader, right? We kind of look at that and we go, um, that's a list I usually skip when I do my annual Bible read, you know? And it, it doesn't mean much to us, but if, if you were somebody into genealogies, it would matter to you, right? Uh, or it, maybe you are somebody. My mother-in-law is one that, that, that's one of her hobbies, and she really just digs into it. And from that, she understands where her family's come from, where you know, my family's come from, as she's researched that. And it gives a lot more meaning and purpose to where then you find yourself now, where you've come from. Well, those genealogies in the Bible did that for that culture, right? That mattered to them. Who hailed from whom, from whom, from whom? That tells your story because those genealogies are not divorced from other narratives. And so as they're reading the genealogy and you come across a certain name like David, the Israelites, let's say, um, or the Jews by the time of Jesus when they're reading the genealogy of Matthew or Luke, they're going to go, oh yeah, we knew what was happening in Israel during that time with David. We knew what was happening in Israel during that time with that prophet's name right there. And so it reminds them of their history and that, that genealogy, especially like in the New Testament, leads up to why the Messiah was so critical at that juncture in history. It was the culmination of things. Same with the Old Testament. Those genealogies are telling a story because usually when you read them, they'll start with Adam. 
right? Starts with the figurehead of the biblical narrative and then goes to other names. You go, oh yeah, I know that name, Abraham, and then Isaac, and then Jacob. And it reminds them of their story, where they've come from to where they are today. That's the effect of it. Today, because we don't dig into that history as much, um, we just kind of see the genealogies as a technicality. But for them, it was storytelling in a very abbreviated form uh, that, that made a lot of sense and meant a lot to them in their own personal journey as a nation with God. So, Do you believe that Christians have a personal guardian angel? Um, I don't have anything in the Bible that says that. You know what I mean? There's, there's a little bit, maybe, Jesus talks about the little children and, and the angels that are watch over them. He kind of makes this little hint to that, so maybe kids do. Uh, we see like in Hebrews 13, it talks about we may have entertained angels unknowingly. So there's kind of, there is some relationship to believers and angels, certainly. We learned this in Ephesians, where the church teaches the angelic world by what it does. Uh, so angels learn from us. But this idea of every individual being assigned a guardian angel, we just don't really have a text for that. We don't have anything that could really anchor that. Uh, we just know that there is a heavy overlap between our world and the angelic world, and it does play a role, uh, and we play a role in their world also. But the details of that, we, we just really don't know. So to say anything one way or another with conviction on that one would just be going further than what we kind of have re revealed to us. Did God create sin, or is it just the brokenness that comes from the absence of God? Uh, yeah, I, the latter. It's the brokenness that comes from the absence of God. This comes up to a question that like, the first service had about, you know, well, if God already knew everything, then kind of why? And I stretched out and sat down and said, I don't know. Um, you know, so, you know, it, it's, it's, there's a lot of mystery revolving this, but I go back to like James chapter 1. Uh, speaking of God the Father, in him there is light and there is no darkness at all right? So, you know, which is euphemism for there is no sin in God. So the idea that God is the catalyst to sin would go against the character of God, and that's why we say, no, 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 God is not the catalyst of sin. You go, but, but if God knew the future, in that sense, because he knows it, did he create it? Da, da, da. We're just getting too smart for our own good on some of those questions, too, because, again, those are unanswerables, will always be unanswerable, so what we go back to is what's definitive. Definitive is God is light in him. There is no darkness at all. Uh, God has no sin. Jesus, who knew no sin, took on our sin, so sin does not begin or have its birth in God. What God did create is a creation, and in that creation, there are variables, and in those variables were potential and others sinned, right? First Lucifer, then the angelic world, eventually the human race, um, because the variables were there for that potential, but God didn't create it as the catalyst. He created an environment where there was option. And in the environment of option, you have the option for evil as much as you have the option for good, right? But it didn't emanate from God. That would be probably a good, concise way to see it. With so many religions and beliefs in the world, how can you know that Christianity is the right one? That is a great question. I cannot tell you how you can know Christianity is the right one. What I can tell you is what segregates Christianity from all the other ones, right? Um, because, you know, anytime people say, well, all religions are basically the same, I'd say, then you don't know the basics of all religions. They are not basically the same. Uh, they are on the fray the same. I mean, if you say basically is basis or core, their core is dramatically different, religion to religion. The fray is the same, and I say fray because from the core emanates, here's kind of, who we worship, why we worship, what that being expects, and then from that it kind of goes out until the fray, and the fray is ethics or, or, or uh, you know, values. That's the fray. Ethics and fray are never the core of a religion. 
They're the fray of a religion. They're the final outplay of its ideology, right? So um, if we get to the fray, well, then a lot of religions do not murder, do not lie, do not steal. That's where they're similar. The fray is similar. I think the fray is similar because you go back to Romans chapter 2 and it says that the law is written into the human conscience, right? So the fray is built into everybody, whether they listen to it or don't listen to it. That's another question, but it's kind of built in. That's the fray. The core difference is, are going to be like your Eastern religions are very much about enlightenment. You, you go to higher levels, you are um, freed to the next tier uh, because you become more enlightened, right? So the more you open yourself up to becoming truly one with the universe around you, the more you are enlightened by your environment, the more liberated you become. So it's salvation by enlightenment. Then you get to something like Judaism or Islam, and that is salvation by your effort, right? How... Uh, how rigid you are to the system, how much you adhere to all of the rules, which is why you see in radical Islam, the pinnacle of rule-keeping there is the taking of your own life in the name of Allah through jihad or whatever else. In certain segments, not all segments, but in certain segments, that's true. So it's salvation by your efforts. So one group is salvation by enlightenment, another group is salvation by efforts. Um, also, what is true to, to some of those systems, we look at the, some of the Eastern religions, like Buddhism, for example, is a good one, Technical Buddhism, there is no God, there's no deity, right? So somebody says, well, you know, Buddhists believe in God. No, Buddhists don't believe. The whole purpose is there isn't a God in Buddhism. Uh, so there is no God in one system. Uh, then you have, like Hindu, you've got millions of gods, and millions of little hyper systems kind of connected to that, but it's still going to come down to kind of this putting off and enlightenment, that kind of thing. Um, you know, then you have islam and judaism one god all related to a biblical narrative going back to the old testament but works related right very much you're earning your status before god what makes christianity different from every religion in the world it is a salvation offered purely purely by the grace of god for god doing something for you that you could never do for yourself Right? That, is the, that is the benchmark of what makes Christianity stand out from every other religion. I can't then from that say, and that's why Christianity is the true religion. Right? I mean, I, I believe that. I believe that with conviction. But the reason I can't say, oh, that's the clincher is because I can't, can't cross that final line. But what I can say when somebody asks is they're not all the same at their core. They're very different. And here's what makes Christianity different from any other religion in the world. God came and did it for you because you could never do it for yourself and you're saved only by grace. Only by grace. It's not by your enlightenment like those systems. It's not by your effort like those systems. It's purely by Christ. He did it for you. And you believe in him and that's appropriated to you. So, hey, look at that. Yeah, that, that, clap for that because that, I mean, that's, that's true, man. That's what makes it different. It's, it's all because of him. So that, that's the answer I typically give. Um, to people, and, and, and that kind of helps close a lot of that gap, especially kind of clearing out the whole they're the same. You know, I think a lot of people say that and they haven't thought about it, and anybody that's truly connected to their own religion, that never quite resonates right, because they kind of know, like, well, wait a minute, no, the core of what I believe is not about eventually what I do. We, eventually what I do is housed in what I believe. Um, and, and all these religions are very, very different, actually, at the core. So, As kind of a follow-up, um, is it worthwhile for a Christian to read the texts of other religions? Um, yeah, I mean, I think it can be. I mean, I, you know, I say that like anything, I think it's where are we at and why are we doing it, right? Um, plays a pretty big role in that. So if we're in a mode that says, you know what, um, I'm kind of critical of my own faith, I'm kind of curious about things right now, you're going to go on Mr. Toad's wild ride. You know what I mean? Like, 
you're just going to, because you're going to be, oh, that's really good, and that's really good, and that's really good, and you're going to be like James 1, you're going to be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, same thing in Ephesians 4, says it the same way there, so, um, you know, but if your mode is like, I just want to understand it, but I'm pretty, st- I'm stable in my faith, that can be useful, uh, I know some people that get a little weirded out, they start reading texts of other religions, and they're like, okay, I just quoted that to a friend, did I just quote the Quran or the Bible, I don't remember, I, I've, been, I've been ingesting too much, I don't know, you know, uh, you can have a little bit of that, uh, so, you know, read it with wisdom, but I also think, you know, it's, it's not outside of the realm, I mean, you look at Paul, he was very versed in all of the religious systems that he found himself a missionary to, he understood Artemis, and he understood all of the gods of the Romans, and he understood their cultural variants, and he would even quote their philosophers and poets, and that kind of stuff, and even some of their superstitions he leveraged for the gospel. So he was very much a reader of the other world systems um, and, and learner of those, and you can use those in a pretty effective way. You know, also, and that may be really quick, you might have a friend that you're reaching out to, and you go, I'm going to read all up on their stuff so I can debate them. Stop. Um, what, what I mean is you're not trying to win the argument, you're trying to win the person. So educate yourself on what they believe, but don't come armed with what they believe just so you can win. Right? You want to win over. So you leverage that information in a grace, gracious way versus you leverage it to go, oh, but here's where your system's broken. Da, 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 da. And they're just like, they just wall up. Right? They'll just wall up. So again, use the information wisely when you have it if you're trying to reach out to somebody of a different system. So, A lot of my non-believing friends say the reason they don't believe in God is that bad things happen and why doesn't he stop them? How would you answer that? Um, you know, this, this is a little bit like a question in the first service, and um, a pastor friend of mine, I, I just like the way he worded this, I'm, I'm going to butcher it, because, you know, he owned it, and I just got to hear it once, but I thought it was good, um, he said, uh, you know, the reason that God allows the warfare of the current era of, of human existence, right, so from Adam and Eve's rebellion to now, the reason that God leaves the warfare is a little bit like the question we had in the first service about pain, why does God allow pain? Uh, the warfare, the pain, the suffering, um, it, it, it shapes not just us as individuals, it's shaping the human race. Because sometimes we get very myopic. You know, why does my suffering come to me? Um, all of this accumulative suffering is shaping the race. It has been shaping the race. God operates on race levels as much as he operates on individual levels. So it's shaping the race, and it's equipping us and training us as a race as then the race keeps coming to him uh, a little bit more refined, a little bit more learned, a little bit more battle-tested. Um, it's preparing us in this life for the life to come. And the way he said it is, God uses the pain and warfare of this time to take peasants and develop us into being the queens and kings of the era to come you know and so you know that's a very simplified almost narrative way of saying it but i think it's a good and solid place to go with that idea not literally that we become kings and queens in the time in the times to come though you read revelation like 21 22 it talks about the kings of the earth come to the new jerusalem you know we kind of see the the final state as there's one king and everybody else is all the same we're just like clones in heaven that's not the picture you're given in the book of revelation you're given a picture where there's different nations and different rulers of different nations that all come to the new jerusalem where god is right so clearly some are street sweepers based on how they lived in this life and others are going to reign as kings based on how they lived in this life and the kings are probably going to be the street sweepers of here and the street sweepers of there are going to be the people that were kings here right because the first is last last is first the greatest is least all that stuff is going to be true um and so God uses the pain and suffering of this world to shape us for the world to come. 
Um, why doesn't he stop it? For that very reason. Uh, we could raise whether that's just, we're not God. Um, and, and so I go back to God is just, he knows what he's doing, this does develop us. You go, well, there's a lot of collateral damage that comes out of that. Yes, there is, and God is still just, and he knows why. And I, 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 I find that I sleep a lot better at night relying on God is just, and I can't answer all the questions, versus this just seems unjust, and I want to redefine God or redefine the conditions or be mad at God for it. Um, that does not help me sleep at night. Right? The other helps me sleep at night because God's just God, he's sovereign, I don't know, but he knows what he's doing. Um, but I know why it exists now is to, is to grow us. I think the other part we forget, I think C.S. Lewis put it well, um, I think in The Problem of Pain was the book he wrote it in, he, he used the uh, illustration of like uh, a two-by-four, I think is what he used. And he says, you know, a two-by-four, you can use it to build great structures and beautiful things, or you can use it to smack somebody. You know, the embedded evil is also the embedded blessing to anything. You know, gravity holds us to the ground and makes life stable and reliable. You know, but if you got rid of gravity, everything would be unpredictable and chaotic. So there are certain things that there is a pro and a con built into ev the fabric of everything. And so that's also, just to have pleasure, you have to have pain, you know, um, because it's kind of built into the fabric. Both are possible in a world of option like that. And so it's another part of why God kind of allows it, but all of it shapes our character and prepares us for eternity. Isn't he doing a good job? Yeah. As Christians, how much should we be involved in the political process, such things as protests and boycotts? Um, yeah, you know, I, I, and I'm, I'm going to try to answer this one seriously because sometimes I joke about it and sometimes I'm serious and I want to try to stay as serious as I can um, on this. And, and I don't have a clean answer because, you know, it'd be really easy to say it's right or it's wrong. And I think there's a legalism in there both ways because the Bible doesn't really speak to that. I, I go back to what we're called to is to win over not to win. I'm going to use that, that system again. So when if I flip it in my mind, I go, okay, so let's say I was going to preach on the homosexual issue. Let's say we had a series, and that was going to come in the series, um, and so a group of, of gay activists all came, and they picketed and protested Redemption Church out here in the circle. Um, do I believe that they would be opening up a dialogue, or they would just be engaging in a monologue? They'd be engaging in a monologue. They don't want a dialogue. That's partly what a boycott or a protest or a picket does. It doesn't open up a dialogue. It opens up purely a monologue. It's a monologue that says, I've already judged you. I'm not for you. I'm against you. That's why I'm out here taking up my day with this picket. I'm against you. I'm not for you. I'm not trying to dialogue with you in relationship. I'm trying to just command you, and hopefully the public will shame you, which is why I'm out here with a stick, so that other people come against you with me to say you're wrong, right? And we would probably be kind of bothered and offended if somebody came and picketed our church over that topic that I was going to preach on. Even if my message was, we have to love the gay community, we want to get behind the gay community, we just can't embrace this activity within the gay community, which is their, their sexual action, right? We've talked about this before as a church. So it's a group we want to reach, we want to love, we can't condone everything that happens within their life, but we want to still reach them and still identify sin as sin. Even if I had that message and I tried to communicate as gracious as possible, we're still going to be a little bit hurt and mad and frustrated and offended that they're out there picketing, right? Because it doesn't open up dialogue, it's just purely a monologue, a monologue of judgment fundamentally. So now I just take that and go, so if I would be troubled by that and I wouldn't want necessarily interaction after somebody's done that to me, why on earth would anybody else want that from us as Christians? Then I go a step further and say, we should know better 
than the world around us. I shouldn't be shocked if a group comes and pickets a church because they're using the weapons of this world and their priority is not eternal or heavenly. Their priority is just changing the texture of our culture today, right? Um, we as Christians, there's some things we know. We know that the world lies under the sway of the wicked one. We know that, you know what, flesh and blood is not our enemy, but Satan's our enemy who the whole world lies under his control. We know that their eyes are blinded so they can't see the truth. Second Corinthians 4, 4. First one is Ephesians chapter 6. The one before that was Ephesians chapter 2. We have all these scriptures that say, you know what, the world is lost, blind, going to hell, doesn't see, doesn't realize, doesn't know, and we are the ambassadors. How do we win over, not just win? How do we win over, not just win? And that's where I think we'll do better to have the long game. Now, am I saying there isn't ever a time and ever a place where you don't try to be influential on legislation or whatever else? There probably is a time and there probably is a place, and we need to weigh those things wisely. I think part of the problem is we don't weigh them wisely. We picket, protest, or challenge everything constantly. So we're white noise. We're just white noise. And, and that's always my concern. Um, or the other part, I think on the boycott side, um, is we go, only the gospel is going to change lives, but I'm going to leverage economy to make these people do what I want them to do morally. Because that's what a boycott does. Um, I'm going to take my money from you so you don't have my money so I can leverage you dropping a policy I don't like. So we're using money to control morality. That's at its core what a boycott does. I'm using money to control or redirect morality. Um, and I still don't think that opens up a dialogue. I think that's just another monologue and we're leveraging money as opposed to gospel to create whitewashed tombs, to make people do what we want them to do but they still don't know Jesus and they might even be more hostile to Jesus now because we forced them to do what we wanted them to do with our money. All of that, I think, just demands us processing, right? So I'm not going to the legalism that says it's always wrong or it's never wrong. Those are both legalisms. They always are never. I think we have to be wise, though, about what our goals are and how we get people to places. And it was interesting. I don't even know if I, don't even know if I have time to tell the story in a rapid way, but I'm going to try. Remember when Chick-fil-A was getting all just pounded by, by the gay community? Um, here's what was interesting about Chick-fil-A. They never really had any public statements. Um, and so they got boycotted a lot, and they were supposedly supporting all these organizations that were anti-gay and everything else, and they didn't say a thing. Behind the scenes, the president of Chick-fil-A started meeting with the president of the gay organization that was picketing Chick-fil-A. He's like, I'm not going to make any public statements against these people. I'm going to build a relationship. This is pretty cool. So this Christian man who's getting picketed by all these people says, I'm going to build a relationship with the president of this gay organization. Now, this guy gets this call, and he's like, yeah, you know, I'm the dude on Chick-fil-A. Just want to hang out with you you know and the gay guy was like ah this is a trap you're gonna shoot me you know like um no way so they meet they hang out for lunch just kind of talk about life family things they keep doing this 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 the president of chick-fil-a keeps meeting with this guy finally it's the chick-fil-a supported bowl right so the chick-fil-a bowl he invites him to sit in the box seat with him at the chick-fil-a bowl right um he's going to be seen with this gay activist who's been picketing all of his businesses, right? But he's built relationship. Um, well, at the end of the, 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 the game, he goes, hey, I, I'm, I'm having my attorney send you something. And he's like, great, what is it? He goes, I'm going to send you all of our tax records for the last couple of years. He goes, because you'll see who we're actually supporting in those. And so he sends him to this activist, and he finds out all the things that Chick-fil-A was being accused of by the gay organization wasn't true. Chick-fil-A hadn't supported them in years um, for different reasons. And so there was all kinds of... Now, Chick-fil-A day one could have said, here's who we support, don't support, could have made it public, got a part of the debate, everything else. They didn't do that. You know what they did? Went over. Went over. So this article that I read was from the, the, the gay activist. 
basically saying, uh, I, what I didn't know, I didn't know, and I confess now that I know, and he showed me more love and um, respect than I ever thought possible, and now I have a friend who is an evangelical who hasn't changed his position on homosexuality, but he's my friend, and we have a dialogue. I think that goes way further than the other options, right? So I know that was a longer answer. I, I say that because this is going to be increasingly the problem. I, I've watched the last two years just this radical polarization. Everything that isn't Christian is our enemy attitude. And I think we have to be really cautious because these are the people we're trying to win, right? Not beat, trying to win them over. Um, and so I, I think we just have to be sensitive to keep our mission before us. Our mission, and I might get in trouble for this, forgive me, I, I hope you can, hope I'm saying this in the right way. Our mission isn't the preservation of our heritage or our culture as a church. Our mission is the kingdom and the gospel. And as soon as we talk about we're losing our heritage and we're losing our national values, um, my prayer is that we don't let that topple kingdom and gospel. You know what I mean? So we're not trying to get back to something. We're trying to see the kingdom advanced. And, and that's, I think, what the church should always keep in mind is it has to enter the fray of this cultural challenge that's only going to get harder. You are living in a post-Christian culture. You just are now. You know, anybody that wants to say otherwise, it's post-Christian. It is what it is. We're, we're now missionaries. We're missionaries. So we have to kind of treat it more as missionaries. And I think the more we create dialogue, the better off we're going we're gonna to be. I do. A lot of great questions we won't be able to get to, so I think we have time for one more. Um, can a true Christian lose God's favor and go to hell? Um, really, that's the last one you're going to end on? Yeah. Um, let's get that dirt or road question. Um, oh, that was a motorcycle question. I just thought about that, wasn't it? <laughs> Same answer? No, that's a split. I would just do both if I could. Yeah. Um, come on, man. That's like boxers and briefs. It depends on the activity. Um, so. Uh, Too much information. Yeah, I know. Um, yeah. So, I mean, here, you know, this is the, I mean, it, depending on the nature of how the question's being asked, can go a lot of directions. Here, here's my take on this. Um, all who truly know Christ are not going to truly leave Christ. You know what I mean? This is less about the question of free will and sovereignty and all of that. I think it's more there's these promises that say, um, you know, because there's people that run around confessing Christ, and I think there's some that confess Christ that don't know Christ, and then some that confess Christ that really do know Christ. The question isn't whether one has made a confession. The, one is if some, the issue is really if someone's gone through a conversion, right? That's the real issue, because what happens is when somebody, in, in true legitimacy, bows their knee to Christ, is... Um, brought into the fold of God, uh, they are transformed. They, they don't just have a confession, they have a conversion. So what the New Testament describes that as is the Holy Spirit has come and taken up residence and you have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places and you are now an adopted child. And I mean, just go through that list in Ephesians 1. That is this commemorative list of everything that is true of the truly converted person. And if you look at that list, and it is true of the converted person, embedded into that list are things that are future guarantees, right? 
So this is your destination. This is your end goal. You have this inheritance of the Spirit until you receive your full inheritance. That message is once true transformations happen, it's a, it's a set pattern. You are truly changed. And the power of the Spirit is in resonance in your life in such a way that you're not going to come to a place that says, I don't want God, I don't want this, because you've been fundamentally changed. You are a changed person. And with that, you have a changed destiny. You can't shift out of that. The, the issue is there are those that say, you know, I went to a Petra concert, I was so overwhelmed, I accepted Jesus when I was 17, and now I don't care. You know, and like, because I know that guy. Um, and, and, and I would say that there was a, it's like the parable of the seed and the sower, you know, the, the, the second seed that falls on rocky ground and springs up quickly for joy, but then the sun scorches it out and it dies. In that parable of the seed and the sower, just because it sprung up didn't mean it was saved. Jesus does not use that that parable to say if you spring up you're saved and then you withered and you lost it um in an agricultural environment like theirs only if it produced a crop would you care so only the fruitful mattered so the first three seeds were non-fruitful they they had different responses to the gospel none kind of excited excited but then got quenched out by the world all of those jesus would say you were never truly converted you just confessed something but you never really changed but the one that produces 60, 30, 60, or 100, that was truly converted. There was a change, and they produced, right? That's the dividing line. The last seed is the truly saved seed. The other three seeds are not truly saved seeds. Some of those confessed, but only one was converted. And the evidence of conversion is you, you have inheritance, you have spirit, you produce fruit, all of those kinds of things. Uh, they're just, that's just what happens for a truly converted person. Because now you go back to like Philippians 2. 12 and 13, where it says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, which just means exercise it. People get, work out, that's works. No, just means exercise. Exercise your salvation with fear and trembling, because it says, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to act for his good pleasure. Um, Once you're truly converted, God's at work in you, both to will and to act. Um, You know, and so your wills are changed. It's just, it's different. So I would say the truly converted person no, they're, they're, they're locked in because they are now adopted. They are destined for a promise. They have an inheritance awaiting them. They're locked in. Uh, but there are people that make a confession but don't really care. Um, and maybe what, you know, we say there's, there's non-believers, there's believers, and then there's make-believers. Um, and they're make-believers, potentially. And you go, well, am I a make-believer? You know, I, I don't know. You know. I mean, like, if you, if you seek Jesus, want Jesus, love Jesus, uh, you want to do what he wants you to do and be closer to him, that's a pretty good sign of a believer. If you got ah, none of those things are true of me, then you might want to do some business with God and say, God, I'm, I'm not there. I, I want more assurance because he wants to give you that assurance. Um, he wants to. In fact, that's what the book of 1 John's all about. All right, these things that you may know you have eternal life. Go, great. How do I know I have eternal life? Well, you want to confess your sin. You want to pursue God. And, you know, you want to do the things that the book of 1 John talks about. It's a great place to go to say, hey, this is the benchmark of a truly safe person. Um, and therefore, I can know. So I would encourage that if you have that question mark of am I a make-believer or not. So, mm-hmm. Is that it? All right, kids, that's it. So good questions, everybody. Excellent questions.